Welcome to another edition of Special Characters. My name is Stuart Foley, and I'll be your host. We have got a very special guest today, and I am beyond excited to talk to you about the dubstep DJ phenom, Bear Grylls. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Stuart? Good to talk to you again, of course. Thank you. You are not the most obvious guest on this show, and I think it bears a little time talking about how we met. So you tell me, like, fill in the gaps where I get this wrong, but we're going on a plane. I'm going from Chicago to Denver, and I've got my roller on and all that stuff, and I'm kind of just minding my own business. And I sit down, and there's a really nice guy and his girlfriend sitting next to me in the seat. I think nothing of it. There's nothing particularly different about this guy casually dressed, got a baseball hat on, whatever, sit down. And, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. I can't shut up. I don't (laughs) stop talking to anybody. So RJ and I start talking, kick up a conversation. And he asks me what I do. And I mentioned that I was a college professor. And he starts asking me, he said, what do you teach? And I said, I teach finance. And he asked me a series of really interesting and good questions about investments You asked me about rental houses. You asked me about gold. You asked me about Bitcoin. And after me telling you that I thought Bitcoin was a sham, you told me you made a lot of money on it. And I said, maybe I should be listening to you. So at that point, I say to you, what do you do? So that's the part where you can tell people what you actually do. Yeah, so it actually so happens that I, I played in Tokyo, Japan two nights before Chicago. So I played in Tokyo, hopped on a 24-hour flight, landed in Chicago, played the show in Chicago, and then right back in the morning, hopped back on another flight back to Denver where I live. And I remember being so tired I could barely function, let alone, you know, get on a plane and not fall asleep on the plane ride home. And because of my status with United Airlines, I typically get bumped up to first class. I remember thinking, oh, it's an early flight. You know, we'll get bumped up easily. Didn't get bumped up. And the only seat that I had was the aisle seat, middle seat, because I give my girlfriend the window seat. And just by chance, I was sitting next to Stuart. And it's funny because my girlfriend, Ashley, she says that I'm a chatterbox with everybody. And sometimes <laughs> even if the people next to me don't want to talk, I'm just blabbing away and talking just because that's, that's kind of who I am. I just like to, to talk to people and, you know, let them know everything's okay. So, you know, we started talking and I like to speak to real financial minded people about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and whatnot. Even though I invest in traditional assets, I have gold, I have stocks, I have uh, ETFs and all those types of things, but I've been a really heavy investor in cryptocurrency for the last four years, and I love to get opinions on it from you know traditional finance type guys because I personally tend to think that digital currency is the future, and I like to see what other people think, and that's kind of where our conversation got interesting, I think. And you're like, oh look, this old gray-haired guy with the beard <laughs> thinks not so much, and you know, it was a funny start. A lot of our audience may not be well-versed in the world of dubstep. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So dubstep most recently has its fame from the movie Deadpool 2. I don't know if you've seen Deadpool 2, but there's a scene where he talks about dubstep when Ryan Reynolds, his character, is fighting 
Josh Brolin, his character in, in the movie. And he says, you know, is dubstep still around because Josh Brolin's characters from the future. And then he plays a song by Skrillex who Skrillex, I'm sure a lot of you, if you don't, if you're not familiar with EDM or dubstep, you might've heard the name Skrillex because he's kind of the pioneer in the dubstep world who have since moved on to the pop world. So if you hear a Justin Bieber track, chances are it was produced by Skrillex. So that, that's how far this guy has come. So electronic music, most people associate electronic music with house music or techno music, which in, in reality, the only thing that electronic music means is that it was music that was made electronically on a computer. But it did get its start in the house and techno world back in the 80s uh, in Europe. And then the house music scene in Detroit caught fire and it sort of spread throughout the US and there was a small underground scene in in London in the London suburbs called dubstep which was characterized obviously from the name dub almost like a slow reggae-ish feel to it and that was popularized I think in the late early 2010s and it has since evolved a lot dubstep now is you know it, it's everything it's got vocals it's got a lot of pop undertone. It, it, it could be, there's so many sub genres of dubstep now that the original core dubstep, it's not even there anymore, in my opinion. So on the plane, we're leaving, the plane takes off and you have your laptop there and you say to me, do you have any, do you have any earbuds? So I do. And you pull out your laptop and you plug in a splitter and we plug into your laptop. And yep. you show me a video from a festival called Lost Lands. And I had never heard of Lost Lands, but it's a night shot. And you can see what appears to be a life-size dinosaur, right? <laughs> Which I've never been to a show with a life-size dinosaur, i got to be honest. And I, I don't know how to describe it. it let's say it this way. It is intense. And, very, um, very, very intense. intense. There's a lot of lights, a lot of bass. And you point at this little point of light that's between the dinosaur legs up on the stage. And you say to me, that's me right there. And so <laughs> I came to find out that, you know, this is a massive festival. How many people show up at, at Lost Lands? I think over the course of the three days, it's almost 200,000 people. Yeah. So I'm looking at this and I have a tremendous thirst for anything that I don't know anything about. And Same. so, <laughs> right, we share that, right? That's why we became friends because we don't have, you know, like, you know, maybe like what we do for a living may not have much in common, but we both are, I was so wanted to learn about what it is that you do, right? So at the end of this deal, RJ says to me, hey, give me your card. And I'm like, okay, yeah, here. So I give him my card. And I, I sincerely at that point believe what a nice guy politely taking my card. I'll never hear from this guy again. But, you know, good stuff. So I come into my classroom the next day and I mention this chance encounter and my street cred on that college <laughs> skyrocketed. I just want you to know, like to the roof. So a couple of days later, I get an email and you write me and you say, hey, really nice to meet you. I'm going to be back in Chicago. And those of you not familiar, there's a concert venue called Navy Pier here. So I'm going to be at Navy Pier at the end of March. And you say, I'd like to invite you backstage. Now, 
I got to tell you, I don't care what kind of music fan you are, backstage to somebody, the words backstage to somebody who's <laughs> not in that business is like, oh my God, you know, if I can be back, you, you pick the spot, I'm there. So I wore a sport jacket and slacks uh, to this, well, sport jacket and jeans, just to make sure that I wasn't inadvertently tossed into a mosh pit. <laughs> but it was so much fun, right? So much fun. And then you and I have been able to stay in touch with each other a little bit. I know you're a very good investor. And what got us to this point is because of COVID, a whole bunch of your shows have been canceled for the foreseeable future. And all you and I have talked about all the impacts of all this, these changes throughout the industry and all that sort of stuff. And I said, hey, RJ, would you come on and just talk about this? I think what you do for a living is really interesting. I think that your viewpoint is really interesting and you have a good way of tying that back to the market. So how did you get in the business? I mean, you're not the stereotypical uh, dubstep DJ by looking at you walking down the street. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I was, but people from all walks of life love dubstep. And I think first we should define what dubstep is. So dubstep is a form of electronic music, but it's a subgenre which is characterized by heavy bass. So it's, it's aggressive music and it's uh, headbanging music. The kids, they headbang, they mosh to it. So back in 2008, I graduated college years earlier than that. And I have a political science degree, pre-law from UC San Diego, which is one of the top political science schools in the country. And I was going to go into law, study for my LSAT to go to law school. And at that time, I didn't want to get a job. So I moved back to my parents' house. And my father was a musician. He never made it to the heights that I've made it. But I would throw these backyard house parties when my parents were gone. And they were, <laughs> you know, I hate to use the word legendary, but every kid from every high school would show up to the point where I used to have to have friends as bouncers at the front door, <laughs> bouncing kids that, you know, were at capacity. <laughs> So I got the idea when I moved home and I said, you know, I'm going to study for the LSAT for a year and I don't want to have to get a job. So I convinced a local restaurant to let me host an event there with a local DJ. And at that point, the, the restaurant, it was kind of a higher end restaurant, but I chose the, the space because it had an open floor plan. And I knew if I brought in a DJ, you know, our friends, we would dance and everyone would drink and have a good time. And so the reluctant owner said, okay, we'll try it, but you have to promise me that the bar will do X amount of dollars. And if the bar doesn't do this amount, you're going to owe the difference. So I said, okay, no problem. I'm confident. So needless to say, this first party at a restaurant that I threw, I think we tripled his bar minimum. And he <laughs> comes to, he comes to me the end of the night and says, can we do this every single week? <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. I, you know, back then this was in the early two thousands before text messages. And I would literally send one email to 40 people. And those 40 people would send their emails to those other 40 people and 800 people from the long beach area would show up and pay a cover. And I'll never forget it because the very first one I threw, I made $3,000 cash. Oh my God. And for a 21 year old kid with no job, you know, I said, I'm good for a year. I live with my parents. I'm good. <laughs> exactly. So, so from that first party sort of stemmed a business and I decided to forego law school and I turned that initial party into a business where I was throwing big concerts in 13 different markets on the West coast, all the way from Oregon to San Diego. Wow. 
And so I was responsible for, I don't know how many markets, but I, I was the very first person to come into these college towns and throw EDM concert for the first time. Whoa, that had to be, and how did you get the word out? I mean, it was pre-social media, right? This business really started booming like 2005. So it, I think the MySpace era was there. So we would invite people via MySpace and whatnot. But I would go up to a college and just recruit students. And I would tell them, hey, you make a list of your friends coming and those friends say their name at the door and pay, I'll give you $3 per person. So I would find the most popular kids on campus. And that, you know, I had some kids bringing 100 kids for me. So they're making $300 plus to go party. Yeah. Plus they get to go to the party, right? It was honestly such a great system that I had. And I, I would book tours of really big EDM acts and I would book them on eight shows across the West Coast from San Diego to Orange County to Santa Barbara to Chico to Eugene, Oregon. And I would just ride up the coast with the tour. Oh, wow. And so from these shows, I decided to manage DJs because I thought, hey, I'm booking the biggest international talent anywhere. If I have, if I'm managing another DJ and I can put him in front of that international DJ, I can get him maximum exposure. So I, I got on you know, social media and I found a couple kids that I thought made really good music, had the complete brand and whatnot, and I started managing them. And so I would be able to put them you know, in strategic places where I knew they're going to be in front of thousands of people and you know, help them spread their brand. So from that, I called it Into the AM, and that was what my produce shows were called. So I decided from that, since I was throwing shows and I was managing artists, I wanted to do a blog of electronic music because at that time, electronic music was really starting to boom in the U.S. And I thought, if I can be at the forefront of all these different things, you know, I can be a leader. So the blog started doing well. All the big festivals allowed me to go backstage and do reviews of their festival because I can't remember at this point how many hits the blog was getting per day, but it was one of the fairly bigger blogs in the electronic music world where, you know, Coachella would give me backstage tickets to go and, and do write-ups of artists and festivals and all that stuff. So then I decided to do clothing on top of that. I just thought it's the next evolution, good brand, and people are reading the blog and going to the shows. They like to buy merch. So I did the merch, merch did well, and I actually sold it to uh, another company in 2012. And that company who bought it actually went on to Shark Tank and got $1.2 million from Mark Cuban. Wow. And at that point, that was the largest money that had ever been given away on Shark Tank. So the brand is actually still around. Almost any show I play across the world, I see some of the merch that I created, which is cool. That is cool. So, and then, but that's all while you were promoting and you were on the periphery, right? How'd you decide to actually start making music? Yeah. So on the management side, not a lot of people know, but depending on the experience or the size of the brand, you can typically take anywhere from 10 to 20% of the gross of an artist. Say Stuart, DJ Stuart, I'm going to manage you. If, if you were not really touring and you know not really having success yet and I decided to manage you, I would take 20% gross and I would manage you. And everything you make, I take a percentage. And I just thought I could do it as well. I thought, you know, I, I manage these guys. I see what they do. I think I can do it and I think I can do it well. So I, I took my experience from being a manager. 
I learned from the guys that I managed on, you know, music. My father was a musician. It, it, it was just in my blood. I took my branding, my marketing experience from being a promoter and a manager and the clothing. And I sort of just tied it all into my brand. And I thought, you know, a lot of these musical types, they don't necessarily get behind the brand. You know, they're so good musically, but that's only a third, in my opinion, maybe even a, a fourth of the battle to be successful in the music world. Wow. Branding is so important. You know, the perception of you, I, I tell people that there's no difference between certain musicians, except for the perception of that musician. You know, if you see DJ Stewart, you could be a better musician than Bear Grylls is, but because I have that perception of being a headliner, for example, our music could be exactly the same. Everyone's going to perceive me to be higher and bigger and spend more money to go to my show versus no one going to your show just because I have that perception. Yeah, absolutely. I really preach perception to people and it's, you know, making the classic saying, fake it till you make it. And that's what I did is I faked it until I made it. I associated myself with the biggest DJs and just latched onto them. Anytime I was around them, I'd take a picture, show it to as many people as I can. Look, I'm with this person. I'm the same. I'm equal. That's what I do with your picture. (laughs) but in reality, you know, to the the people who are going to the shows, that's, that's the big step for getting them to notice you because they see you with the biggest DJ. Like, Oh, this guy, I need to check him out. And that was a big part. And the branding was a big part of it as well. I could have just been, you know, DJ ABC. And for the folks who haven't seen you tell folks what your brand, how bear grills falls into your brand and your look. Yeah. So the reason why I actually chose Bear Grylls, because I wanted to associate myself with an animal first off, because I knew for merch, bringing into my merchandise experience with my previous company, I needed something that was brandable. And if I'm just a normal guy with a normal face, you can't put that on merchandise unless you're Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber can put Justin Bieber in like a six size font on a t-shirt and everyone to buy. I knew that wasn't me. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, you know, if I make it an animal and I have a cool, cute drawing, people would want to buy that because they love animals, that people love bears. And that was a thing. So I chose the name and I chose an animal because I knew I could wear a mask on stage. And at that point, I had never wanted to reveal who I was. So I wanted to remain anonymous. My anonymity was like number one because I had been in the industry for so long. I didn't want people to think, oh, this guy has been in the industry for so long. It's just, all made up for a lot of my friends. I just, I didn't want anybody to know. And funny story back in 2016, I was still anonymous. I remember specifically getting off a plane in Lubbock, Texas, and I have a missed call and it says, Hey, I'm so-and-so I'm the executive producer of the Jerry Springer show. (laughs) You got to wonder like, Hmm, what's this about? And I'm thinking, oh man, I've gotten someone pregnant or, you know, something ridiculous. I'm, my mom is my sister, you know, something that's. <laughs> it's just outrageous. Yeah, yeah exactly. because that's, that's what the show is about. And Absolutely. so I call the guy and he goes, hey, you know, we're going to be in Sweeps Week in May and we're looking for a college demographic and we came across your music and your brand and we know you have never announced who you are. Would you be willing to do it on our show? At first, I said, look, are you tricking me to get on the show to do something else? Like, you know, why most people go on the show? I said, no, 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 no. We can't legally surprise you on the show. For what we agree on, that's what it's going to be. 
So I took some time and I originally told them no. I said, you know, I'm not ready to reveal who I am. And, uh, you know, thank you for the, the interest and I appreciate it. And I went my separate way. And then the next day I decided, you know, I'm going to ask some people because typically I'll keep a group of people around me who I can trust that aren't necessarily yes men that will, you know, not be afraid to tell me no. So I reached out to those people and they all told me I'm an idiot for not doing it. Two million people watch the show every day. Oh, wow. So just for the, our audience that doesn't know this, the head that you wear completely covers your face and it's large. There's no way that anybody could tell who is in there while it's on, right? I mean, it's, it's large. There is no way. So Jerry Springer, I called him back and I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And my initial thought was that, yes, two million people watch the show, but how many potential fans watch that show is mostly an older demographic in all my eyes. But everyone that said, this is such a, an opportunity to brand yourself. And I did it. And I revealed myself on the Jerry Springer show in May of 2016. It was a great experience. I learned a lot from it. And I did notice that there was an uptick in the brand. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I still wear it on stage, uh, the bare head, but I don't wear it for the length of my set. It's probably about 30 minutes out of the hour to hour 15 I typically play. That's really interesting. So a couple of things, I guess. One is I want to talk about the industry just a little bit more. And then I kind of want to talk about, we had, you and I had talked about quite a bit how this COVID crisis was impacting the industry economically. And I think the GDP numbers today showed that, you know, down 4.6% or something along those lines. So, but one of the things I think if you watch any of the you know, pick a movie that documents a famous musician's life, you know, Johnny Cash or Elvis Presley or whoever it is. At some point, these guys crash mentally, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever. Right? Definitely. And I know you personally, and I know, I don't think you take so much as an Advil. And so nope. what <laughs> I, I guess where I'm headed with that is, how do you keep your mental health in check there's a couple aspects to that, but I saw a post that you put out and you were standing in front of what looked like about 15,000 people. And that's something when you took me backstage in Chicago, I had never experienced looking out at a crowd. Now, they weren't looking at me, obviously, they're looking at you, but still to see 13,000 faces looking at you is overwhelming. Most people are never in that situation. How do you manage your mental health in your industry? There's definitely a lot of factors to that question. Um, it's a long process that I've tried so many different things that have, you know, been successful and have failed. And depression and music have been such a long standing documented. So many people have done, you know, research and stories on it. And I never understood it either before I was touring. And I, you know, you hear about these famous rock bands that were on drugs or drunk you know, alcoholism every single night, like the Rolling Stones said they've done drugs, you know, 40 years. And you don't understand how a human being can do that until you tour. Because in my opinion, you go either one way or the other. You either go stone cold sober or you go full on drugs and alcohol because that's what keeps you going. And that is well documented. I've never done any drugs, but I did drink to sort of ease my anxiety, I guess I could call it, before I would go play a show. And it, you know, it helps relax you. 
And I have never suffered any sort of mental health illness, no depression, no anxiety, nothing. And I'm on year seven of touring nonstop. And I fly about 300,000 miles a year. I'm on the road 200 plus nights of hotels. And in fact, the time I met you, I played a show in Tokyo, Japan, Chicago, then back to Denver for two days and then back to China. So it's definitely <laughs> difficult. And I would say about two years ago, I just got hit by a, a train and all of a sudden depression, anxiety, all these things sort of hit me at once. And it's been a process to fight that and to resolve my issues. And I took a lot of steps. I first gave up alcohol. I thought that was a big thing for me. And I hate saying I gave up alcohol because when you say that, most people immediately think I had a problem. When I didn't have a problem, I like to have a drink like everybody else. But when you have a couple of drinks and you get off stage at 2 a.m. and you have to be at the airport by 4 a.m. and you can't sleep and you have a six-hour flight and then you land, you have to go to sound check and play the show the next night. Two drinks of alcohol, which doesn't seem like a lot, that compounds on your life over the course of the year. So I thought, okay, give up alcohol. I'll be in more in control of my mind. My body will feel better. I won't feel like crap in the morning. And I did that and it felt great. And then I decided to give up red meat. So I gave up red meat because I wanted to eliminate some fat in my diet. And the biggest part for me is that I get done playing shows at 2 a.m. And you jump around on stage for an hour plus. The first thing you want to do when you get off stage is eat. Yeah. So it's 3 a.m., want to eat. So I would be on the road and my weight would fluctuate 30 pounds here and there because you don't eat a proper meal. You eat at weird times. You sleep at weird times. It's just, it was very difficult. So I gave up red meat, then I decided to give up dairy because giving up dairy meant I couldn't eat pizza at 3 a.m. And that was the biggest <laughs> culprit. Pizza at 3 a.m. Because when you want to eat at 3 a.m., what's open? What's pizza. open, right. So I gave up dairy because dairy, obviously cheese and pizza, but also when you're on the road and the promoters pick you up from the airport, they take you out to dinner and those dinners are typically free. So I would get dessert. You enjoy dessert because you get a full meal. And then as you know, in my opinion, anyway, desserts are so addicting, almost oh. the most, uh, most addicting thing <laughs> in the world. Yeah. If you eat a chocolate cake and then the next night you're in a different city at a, a beautiful restaurant and everybody's like, oh, the chocolate cake, or you know, whatever it is or whatever country you're in, everyone says, you have to eat this. This is the best dessert in the world and you have to eat it. Right, that's right. So by giving up dairy basically eliminated every single dessert on earth, except for sorbet, I would say. Sorbet is probably the only thing I could eat. That's great. I really focused on my diet and then I focused on my health and I was able to resolve my mental health issues. But I think first and foremost for me, I've always tried to keep the most level of head. A reason why depression exists so much in my life is that you have to think that, you know, you go from being on stage in front of 15,000 people and everybody's praising you and saying, I love you. You're the best. You know, we're fans. You're amazing. You get, you're showered with love, even though you don't know those people. It's hard because you hear something so many times you start to believe it. And I'm a firm believer of that. But then you come home and there's dishes in the sink and there's laundry. <laughs> and it's like, I don't want to do that. I just had 15,000 people last night saying they love me. This, this doesn't make sense. So it, there's just really high <laughs> highs and really low lows. And you don't think about that because it's something doing the laundry or the dishes so trivial. But 
when you're living the high life and suites and room service and people taking you out to dinner and you come home and you have to do those menial things, it's like, okay, this is weird because you're going from a, a low to a high and back down to another low. And I think the difference between that fast life versus the normal life is very challenging for people because they really start to believe and buy into, I don't consider myself famous, but I like to characterize myself as popular. So I think a lot of guys buy into that popularity. And for me, I've always tried to just maintain myself as an, I'm a normal human being. I do something really cool for a living, but my popularity is fleeting at a snap of the fingers. That popularity is going to be gone one day. And I want to be able to exist after that snap of the fingers. And I think a lot of musicians that once their curve ends, they go into a deep depression because they're not getting that praise and that love that they're so used to getting from thousands and thousands of people across the world. Yeah. It's funny when you and I met and we were on the plane, you said, you know, this isn't going to last forever. And I thought to myself, when you said it, I thought, what a wise, this guy is very wise. I mean, um, just to kind of circle back, I mean, let's say that the whole economy opened back up tomorrow. And I believe that you've told me that all of the major festivals over the summer are canceled. I know many of your shows have been canceled. How do you see this reopening going? That's a big question. Yeah, I don't see it going very well for us. And I was reading an article that a lot of the conglomerates like Live Nation and AEG have come together and they're asking for federal aid now because one of the executives said, we were the first to go out and we're going to be the last to return. Because like you said, when you play a festival or even the concert in Chicago, there's 15,000 people in the crowd and they're all touching each other. Yeah. And to think that there's any sort of social distancing measure or face masks or any of that, there's, it's impossible. There has to be a cure or a vaccine or something before we start up because it's impossible. There's no way we are going to be able to return to work without having a vaccine. And I don't think it's official that all the festivals are canceled, but it's, you know, presumably they're not happening. As far as I know, all the festivals that I was already booked to play have already told me that they're not happening, but I don't think it's official official at this point. But we were actually speaking the other day and I was telling you the doors we're going to have to go through to reopen as a musician. And it's going to be difficult because, you know, the first and foremost, are the owners of the concert venues across the country. It's not every venue is owned by Live Nation or AEG. So a lot of these venues, I would say 60% of the venues that I play are sole proprietor owners that I don't think are going to be around when this opens. I think we're going to see, you know, half of these venues, concert venues shut down and not being able to reopen unless they get investors or somebody like a Live Nation just comes in and uses all their excess equity to take loans out and buy it or they have cash on hand or whatever it is. I don't know. So that's drawback. Number one is that what's going to be open when concerts are ready to return. And that's, that's a big thing because I play shows in every single market in the country, not just the, you know, we call them the A markets like Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, but I go all the way to the D E and F I'll play in Omaha, Nebraska or you know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I play pretty much every market, Butte, Montana. And those are the ones that are owned by the sole proprietors, the, the local people. And I really don't foresee those 
hanging around. I, I hope so, but you know, that's step one. And once we get the venues open, step two, are the people who are actually able to open, are they going to have money to spend on artists at first, which I don't think they will be because, you know, they're not going to book talent until they can prove that people are actually going to come and fill up their club. Yeah. Because why would I spend money if I don't think anybody's going to come? If, if everyone's still practicing social distancing, nobody wants to come and be neck and neck with somebody for four hours. So that's step number two is the, you know, getting them open and then figuring out who's going to want to spend money to hire talent. And then step three are the people who are coming to the show, because obviously when you book an artist, you have to charge a cover or a ticket price and who's going to have money to go to that concert. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, I think it's fair to say that your audience may be disproportionately affected versus I know for us, this really hasn't slowed us down. I mean, we can work remotely just fine. Everything's fine. You know, we're doing this podcast from across the country and, and whatnot. But for a whole host of things, and you mentioned this the other day, there's a ripple, right? There's a ripple between, you know, let's say, okay, the person can buy your ticket. That's fine. But can the person buy the merch? They would have bought both. Definitely. You know, they would have bought the ticket you know, the t-shirt for themselves and the t-shirt for their girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, that's what's really hard to forecast, I would think. Definitely. And I've built a pretty sizable merch business on top of my brand. I sell a good amount of volume in merch at every show because most people who go to a concert or, you know, you look at Disneyland, people want to bring something home to remember the feeling yeah. that they had. And that's, that's a big aspect of my business. So it's true because a lot of people are going to be faced with, do I buy one alcoholic drink or do I buy a t-shirt from the band? Or I already had to pay a cover. Maybe I have to drink at home and can't buy either. So right, yeah. it is, it's definitely going to be a challenge for us. But a lot of people have been coming up with innovative ways like streaming online. I actually, before I, I hopped on this podcast with you, just set up my in-home DJ room to be able to stream just to do performances for people online. So that's really cool. You also run, didn't you run a radio show the other day as well? Yeah. So I do a once a month uh, radio show on Sirius satellite for insomniac radio, which is insomniac is owned by live nation. And they're probably the biggest electronic music promoter in the world. They do the biggest festivals across the world. So I used to do it more, but because of my schedule, it only allows me to do it once a month at this point. But Depending on how long we're locked down, I might have to do it a little bit more often. <laughs> you know, it's a strange time. And I will say this. I think that Zoom calls and video calls, I've done more Zoom calls and I'm sure you have too. I've done more video calls in the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. And I've done it in my career times times five or six. And yep. um, But the need to see someone, right, be able to interact with you really changes the dynamic. And everybody wants to see each other. And it's really interesting. I mean, I think people are getting very restless and uh, hard to say how it's going to go. Yeah, it's tough. You know what? It does give us a chance to do fun podcasts like this, man. I'm, uh, <laughs> I can't thank you enough. I was so excited. I've told everybody who will listen that you were going to be on today. And, oh, uh, you know, it's cool. I, you know, I, awesome. it's really exciting to, um, you know, for those of you who haven't been, when I stood, I think I told you this, I was standing in the opening between the stage and the speaker stack. <laughs> I could feel the sound going through me, 
right? I, I had earplugs, but it was going right through me. I've just I, never experienced anything like that. It is really cool. And I will say this, for a lot of our you know audience that hear the initial sound may think, wow, it's really aggressive. But if you listen to it for a little while, there's a lot of artistry in there. It's cool. And I see how people really like it. So definitely, um, you know. Yeah, and I, I think its current state, dubstep, is definitely spread out to not just the original demographic. Yeah. Funny story, I was actually at the dentist office. And long story, I had bit something and part of it was wedged inside of my gum and I it was very irritated. And I went to a dentist and the dentist is literally has my mouth open and is looking in. He goes, I know you, you're Bear Grylls. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is the most personal thing I've ever come across because this guy's literally looking in my mouth, taking a piece of food out of my gum that's lodged in there because I couldn't get it out and says he knows who I am. That's hilarious. It was very uncomfortable for the, for the, for the, the rest of the time, but I think it is growing. I've definitely noticed that there's been a change in the seven years that I've been in business, I guess, or touring, I should say that the demographic is definitely changing to everybody, not just that original headbanger type crowd. Yeah, it's really cool. I hope that the people who are listening to this get a chance to check you out. Where can they reach you? Spotify, iTunes Music, I mean, any Pandora, any of the traditional mainstream music streaming services. And how do you spell it? Just to make sure people can find you. Yep. So it's Bear, traditionally B-E-A-R, and that's Grills, G-R-I-L-L-Z.com. Nice work. I don't know why I added the .com, but <laughs> I'm, just, I'm oh, so yeah. used to giving my email. It's like beargirls.com. That's, That's it. Funny. Yeah. Our website just launched today. We've got a new directory of asset managers that just launched today. So there's a lot going on. This podcast series is new. So check us out. Follow us on uh, all the major platforms. RJ, thanks so much for being on, man. We appreciate you. Definitely. If you ever need a cryptocurrency planner, I'm your guy. Thank you very much. I, appreciate that. <laughs> I need to learn, man. I need to learn from you. That's a, no, that's a whole nother podcast I have to teach you about. <laughs> that's perfect. I'd love to have that. Crypto. Thanks so much. This is Stuart Foley. Thanks for listening. And this is the Special Characters Podcast. <laughs>